0: To really understand the life, the history, and the power of the Philippian church, I think, we must understand the story of its women. Pastor Kent Hughes points out that women played such a prominent role in the founding of the churches in the Macedonia region and Eastern Europe, and specifically in the Philippian church, and were an integral part of its continued existence. For example, we read in Acts 16 that Lydia, who was a prosperous businesswoman, a seller of rare and expensive purple dye, became Paul's first convert on European soil. And someone else he ministered to during that time was a young slave girl who was the first person on European soil delivered from an evil spirit. The work of the gospel in Europe, in other words, began with women. Older women from upper classes and even younger women from lower classes. But in all their cultural and social differences, they were now united in one new family in Jesus. And now, a few decades later, maybe 20-30 years later, we're reading again about two prominent women in the Philippian church. Euodia and Syntyche. And how does Paul describe these women? Well, in verse 3, he says, they are as women who have contended for the Gospel at my side. Now, Pastor Hughes again points out Paul's deliberate language. He's using military vernacular. Do you remember how Philippi was a military outpost in the Roman society. They knew all about military life. And so he's using military language, gladiator terminology, if you will, that's familiar to this context. These women have fought alongside Paul, side by side, for the sake of the Gospel. That's what Paul thinks of them. But that fighting spirit for the sake of God, for the sake of Jesus which is a good thing, has slowly and subtly morphed into a fighting spirit against each other. What once was a partnership in God, where they were all working together for a common goal, a holy and otherworldly friendship for the sake of the Gospel, well, that has unfortunately now soured. And it has turned into a bitter source of contention and strife and division between these two ladies. But let me step back here for a moment. That's their situation. Let's let's bring that into our world today. Let's frame this in familiar terms to us. So once this church was all together, they were on the same page. They were working together to bring glad tidings to a sad society. They came bearing good news finally in a world of bad news, news of peace Hope of healing for rich and poor alike, for young and old, for male and female, for Jew and Gentile. In other words, for everybody. But somewhere along the way, they lost sight of that goal. And they lost sight of the equalizing ground that lay before the foot of the cross. And now rivalry has broken out. Factions with different ideas about politics Factions with different ideas about missions. Factions with different ideas about worship services. These are forming. And a churchly civil war is on the horizon that threatens to undo all the good work that they have done together in the name of Jesus. That's the serious threat that they faced in their day. And I fear for us in this part of the world, and evangelicalism, Baptist churches, however you want to look at it, this is the serious threat that we also face today. And so Paul issues an urgent call to unity and to reconciliation. How? What does he say? Verse 4 is the key. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again in case you didn't hear me the first time. Rejoice! and a world that is almost seemingly exclusively out for blood and bile, that's red hot with hatred. Be something else, Paul says. Be joyful. Be peaceful. Be famously gracious. Now remember, Paul's letter has been a call for this faithful church to persist in the good works that they have been doing so far. And to resist the pressures of their society to slip back into once what they once were. They were once filled with pride and greed and apathy for the things of God. Apathy for His beloved creatures in his, made in His image. But the Gospel has changed all that, though. It's changed them. It's made them into new creatures. And these believers in Jesus have had a total about face in their life. It doesn't matter where they came from, what their career was, how much money they had in the bank, what their educational status were, where if they were even, if they were indebted or they were free, if they were master or slave, Jew or Gentile, all of that stuff has been thrown out the window now. And they are all united together as one in Christ. And that's a reason that Paul has rightly been happy about. A people that were once at each other's throats, that were competing all the time, tearing each other down, using each other, are now a family together that loves and sacrifices. That's a thing that we could be happy about. And so Paul loves this little church. Not because they're perfect. Not because they've earned their way into salvation. But because the love of Jesus has changed them. Which is why he now pleads As someone who loves these people, He pleads with them, begs with them almost, to not let burgeoning rivalries sink them. To undo the good work that Jesus has done in and through them. Now don't you think, in this 2,000 year old letter, with that message, don't you think it is so good and relevant for us as Christians today? And a world that is constantly trying to, whether you're watching cable news or on social media, constantly trying to get you to fight with one another, compete with one another, strive against one another. In the face of mounting pressures in our society to be hostile and unforgiving with one another, the only Christian option Paul shows us, is joy and grace and plenty of it. Now let's look specifically at our passage this morning. Now remember back in chapter 2, Paul pleaded not just with a couple people, but with a whole congregation to be of a same love for one another. To be united in spirit. To be of one mind. Not that they would all have the same brain or the same ideas about everything, but they would all be unified in their thinking, oriented correctly towards the Lord. And this would play itself out, not not just in their minds and attitudes, but in their actions. Because they would be those that think of others first, that put the interest and the welfare of one another before even themselves. And of course, Paul shows us that our example for all this is the Lord Jesus. Well, now Paul is putting not just the entire congregation in the spotlight, but specifically these two people. Here we have Euodia and Syntyche, or Syntyche as some say. Now, the fact of the matter is, with so many people that Paul mentions in his letters, we just really don't know that much about these ladies. We just don't know much about who they once were, what their families were like, uh, how much money they had, what positions they filled in the church. We just don't know that. But what we do know about them speaks volumes. It's powerful. Again, Paul called them co-workers in the Gospel. Not his servants, not his underlings, but his equals in the Gospel message. They fight side by side with him, shoulder to shoulder in ministry. Elect warriors, as Pastor Hughes calls them. Along with this, there's the equally mysterious and unknown Clement. Now, Clement apparently was a common slave name in Roman. So we again, we don't know much about him, but perhaps this is, a, is a, either a freed slave or still a slave maybe under a Christian master. We don't know. But this person, Clement and Euodia and Syntyche, all of their names, we read, are written in the book of life. Now, what that refers to, I think, is what John talks about in Revelation 21 where he talks about this great book that will be opened on the day of judgment when only those uh, whose names are found in its pages will be Enter the kingdom of heaven. So I think that's what Paul is referring to here. So he looks at these people in their humble condition with all their flaws and imperfections, and yet he sees that their names are written for certain in the book of life. And so whoever these people are, doesn't matter where they came from, doesn't matter if they went to seminary or not, doesn't matter if they have impressive jobs, a lot of money, none of that stuff matters. What matters now is they are co workers. True partners with God together in the gospel. But we also don't know what they were disagreeing about. So not only do we not know really who they are, but we really don't know exactly what they were disagreeing about. But whatever it was, Paul talking or taking time rather to address it should signal for us that it's a significant rift. Now just last week, we read that Paul got done telling us not to worry that if people aren't at the same knowledge of God, if they're not in the same spiritual maturity, because God will work that out in the end. Do you remember that? He said, let people live up to the truth that has been revealed to them. And don't worry about policing them or bossing them around, theologizing them all the time. If they're gods, He'll get them where they need to go. So relax. But here he is taking time to address something. So whatever it is, we know it's not a secondary or, or a tertiary issue. It is something that is undermining the health and well-being of the church and their gospel ministry together. So whatever's going on, we don't know. Again, it's clearly a serious issue. Now commentator Lynn Coeck suggests that there are several likely options of what's happening. I think it's, it's helpful for us to know what they could possibly be disagreeing over. It's probably that they disagreed to some extent and how to live the life of faith, how to live out their life of faith in Christ. So they're, they're, they may not be disagreeing explicitly over doctrine, but how they apply that doctrine. It's causing them to, to go their separate ways and have a wedge driven bes- between them. So here's some examples of maybe... Something that they could be striving for, or striving against each other for. Perhaps they are on different sides of the aisle, politically speaking. Maybe one of them is in is more in favor of the secular government there in in Philippi. Maybe they think some of the the, the things that. The government is doing there is a good thing, and while some of the other person thinks no, everything they're doing is a bad thing. I can't imagine how that could possibly be relevant to us today. Or perhaps they're competitive in accommodating different social classes in their congregation. You know, maybe if they are prominent women, which is a possibility, maybe they're using friendships and hospitality to gain favor in different groups. Maybe they're setting up cliques. Maybe they're trying to get in with the, these good crowds or, or, uh, or ingratiate themselves with so the people they see could help them in society. And so they're constantly one-upping each other. There's not one single family. There's now two families forming in this church. And it's causing chaos. And for the people that are not in either particular camp, they feel torn about it. Maybe that's a possibility. Or maybe they're fighting about how to distribute their resources and aid to the suffering in their midst. You know, the early churches would take up offerings and, and they would compile their resources and then they would give to the people in their midst in the most need and and maybe they're disagreeing about that In act six we read that that becomes a problem in the church that's why the the office of deacon is elected because uh the hellenist women are, are, are fighting with the jewish women over who gets the the most resources and so there's a deacons that are elected to come in and settle those disputes and and help and, and aid everyone and can allows the the pastors and bishops to keep preaching the Gospel. And so maybe we have a situation like that. So here maybe are a couple deaconesses who've become entrenched in the agendas of certain church committees that are at odds with one another. Whatever is going on here, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is it's causing problems for everybody in the church. There's a soul sickness in the church of Philippi and worse perhaps than anything, whatever it is that they're scuffling over, what's most likely happening is that they are jeopardizing, actively jeopardizing the Gospel's witness before pagan onlookers. And so people are saying, who cares what the Christians think? They're just as crazy as these different pagan groups that worship Diana or Artemis or, or uh, whoever. Whatever the favorite uh, god was of that day. And so it seems that the old adage about Christian life together is true. To live above with saints we love, oh, that'll be the glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. But Paul asks only one thing of these people. He only asked one thing of Euodia and Syntyche and Clement and all of them. Agree in the Lord. Don't debate social issues. Don't get caught up in political divisions. Don't even spend all your time arguing the finer points of obscure theological debates. Simply be of one mind and one heart and one body in Jesus. Have the same mind in yourself or hearkening back to the hymn of Christ and Chapter 2 here. Have the same mind that is yours and Christ Jesus. And in order to make sure that gets done, Paul asks an unknown leader who he calls a true partner. Maybe in the older translations you might read a fellow yokeman to help them. So certainly, the Philippians know whoever this person is. Paul doesn't explicitly name him. Maybe it's Epaphroditus. Maybe it's another church leader. We're not sure on this side of history. We just don't know. But I think this underlines kind of the heart of what Paul is getting at here. Because true Christian leadership, real Gospel ministry, is often done anonymously. It's often done without fanfare and credit and book deals and speaking tours. It's done in quiet, obscure, faithfulness. Not for fame, not for riches, but for the glory of God and for the good of the neighbor. That's what real Christian leadership looks like. And that's what Paul wants these people to get back to. Working faithfully uh, and even in obscurity where they're not getting any credit from here on earth, but the Father in heaven is seeing the good work that they're doing. Now remember, Paul and Barnabas once failed at this task of working together. You remember how they had a bitter feud over John Mark? And then they were going to go on a missionary journey together and then they went their separate ways. Well, Paul knows the pain of dividing with a brother over issues like that. He knows what it feels like when somebody that you love in Christ and work together well, all of a sudden you guys are at each other's throats. He knows the cost of Christian infighting with no immediate resolution. Now, praise the Lord, we read in the Scriptures in time, they reconciled. And Paul saw John Mark as just an invaluable member of the team eventually. But Paul is wanting these two women to avoid what he and Barnabas learned the hard way. It's always better to agree in the Lord and put the other one before yourself than it is to be at odds with your church. Church, let's let the wisdom of Paul, who's gone through this before, guard and guide us. Let us let his wisdom that says, don't be divided, don't be at odds, be at one in Jesus. Let that be our singular goal here at Maranatha. Not to form cliques, or factions, or disagree about how we parent, how we vote, how we worship, what we, what our careers are, let's not let that get in the way of the mission God has given to us. To be a light to this community, to be a, a family for those that would come and, and join in our midst, and to be a blessing to the world in the name of Jesus. And so to Euodia, to Syntyche, and Clement, and all other unnamed saints at Philippi, Paul offers this corrective. Rejoice! Rejoice in the Lord always! And again, I say, rejoice! Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, notes that three times in Paul's letter to the Philippians does he tell them to rejoice. And each time, it seems to be recommended at a time that it would be in defiance to their situation. So in other words, Paul tells them to rejoice especially when things are bad. When he is addressing problems in their church, not when he's talking about how things are good and happy and good work, you're doing this, but when things are difficult, that's when he says rejoice. So in a world of death and division, the call to rejoice is a great nevertheless. Bart says. When things are thankless, when we feel tired and like complaining and discouraged, that is the time, Maranatha, that we need to defy the world with a bold, exuberant rejoicing. That's precisely when we need to take joy in Jesus. But Paul says or rather, we say to Paul, when our hearts are broken and when we're sick and tired, or what about when we're hurt and lonely, Paul? What about when we've been betrayed and abandoned? What about when the world is just so awful and our marriage is on the rocks and our children are a mess and our job is keeping us topsy-turvy? What about then, Paul, and Paul says, I will say it again. Rejoice. It's not an easy word, is it? It's not an easy word for me. I know it's not an easy word for us. But don't take this as an unthinking, unfeeling command. That Paul is sitting high and mighty, writing you know, from his newest iPad or whatever, and he's got Netflix on in the background, and he's, he's living the life. That's not Paul's situation. Paul is not saying this from a place of privilege or luxury. He is old and hobbled over in chains on a cold, damp, rat-infested floor. And yet he is saying with full confidence, with the utmost sincerity, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice! He knows for brutal and bloody Experience To rejoice in suffering is to refuse. It is for the Christian to refuse to be overtaken by the world which is passing away. It's instead to be propelled headlong out of this shadow land of an existence into the glory of God and the relief of heaven in the future. Rejoicing. Paul would have us know, gives us a sneak preview of the unconquerable, unstoppable, everlasting life of heaven which will be devoid of all sorrow and separation and pain overflowing with joy and peace and love and grace and unity forever. To rejoice is to put these things aside and power your way into heaven. When our lives are defined, Christian, when we're, our lives are defined by this kind of defiant rejoicing, even in our suffering, we become something entirely different than what we have been in this world before. And in verse 5, Paul advises to rejoice so that you may let your graciousness be known to everyone. Everyone. This word, graciousness, is rendered a variety of ways in the New Testament and across different good English Bible translations. Sometimes you might read this verse or a similar verse and you'll see the word gentleness be written. Or reasonableness. Softness. Or I think the King James Version says moderation. Jesus Himself uses this word in Matthew 11.29 when he says, I am gentle or gracious and lowly in heart. That's the idea behind this word. This is the same graciousness and gentleness that did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited. That's the idea going on here. So to rejoice in the Lord, And who he is and what he's done for us in turn allows us to be the kind of people that are gracious and gentle and reasonable and with everyone. With everyone. Not with just the people that agree with us, not with just the people that we like, not with just the people we get along with and are comfortable around. It allows us to be gracious to everyone and to be famously gracious at that. Oh, that the church in America might be known for being famously gracious. Not for being, uh, voting this way not for having an opinion about these cultural trends, not for having these big programs, not for having good universities, not for having nice, clean family radio, but that we might be known for our graciousness to all. That's a tall order for the church today. But it's possible. It's possible. It's possible if we set before us the only thing we look at is Jesus. That's what will get us there. Not a theological education. Not in over-involvement in church volunteerism. If we set Jesus before us, we can spend all our time, even when things are bad, rejoicing. And that way we can be gracious to all. That we can have the patience to bear the mistreatment and miscommunication that will inevitably come in this life. That we will be known for not causing division and inflaming wounds and attacking one another, but we would known, we would be known as those who heal rifts between brothers and sisters. Known even in the world as being winsome and inviting. And as Pastor Hughes summarizes, that we would have a rejoicing spirit that becomes a gentle spirit and is a healing balm not only to the church, but to the world. Now don't miss this, church. This is crucial. In rejoicing, and graciousness, we read in verse 5, the Lord is near." When we rejoice, when we are gracious, that is when we have drawn near to the Lord because He's already drawn near to us. We experience and know Christ in proximity when we rejoice, when we are gentle. He tears through the chaos of uh, of our world. He tears through the fabric of space and time itself to make Himself known to us in our rejoicing and in our graciousness. In joy and peace, the Lord is close and His return is near. We are close to His heart and He is close to ours. And rejoicing and in gentleness. I like the way that the medieval French theologian Hildebert of Tours wrote of the Lord's nearness to us. He says, over all and not ascending. In other words, not not too far away. Not obscure or not um, apathetic. Over all all and not ascending, under all, but not depending, over all the world ordaining and under all the world sustaining. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ beside me, Christ on my left and my right, Christ above me, Christ within me. A great Irish prayer of St. Patrick. In joy and in peace and grace, Jesus is closer to us than our own breath. And he's nearer to us than the blink of an eye. Think of this, Paul says, and rejoice. Think of this and be gracious and gentle. And finally in verse six, think of this and don't worry about anything. This is where the rubber meets the road for us. Certainly for me, who is so fundamentally anxious as a person, that's just written into my DNA. I'm seeing my mother and my aunt laugh this morning because they know. There's just a nervous, neurotic, you know, German Lutheran in me. Now, remember again, Paul isn't playing Bobby McFerrin here. He's not sitting on a beach chair, drinking a mimosa, and saying, Don't worry, be happy. He has a lot of reasons to be anxious. There's plenty that this church could be anxious about poverty. Hunger, ostracism, traitors, heretics, extremely unwelcoming local governments. But instead, Paul says to them, and echoes the Lord Jesus, worry doesn't do anything. In fact, it's pagan and, and not productive. So worry about nothing. That is the hardest command I can imagine sometimes. Worry about nothing. I think of Jim Hyatt, who was a missionary, for many years, in Papua New Guinea, and a Sunday school teacher at this church for many years, an integral part of our church in a Chinese-Indonesian church plant here in the Atlanta area. I remember uh, so well his advice about worry. If you're worrying over something you can do something about, well, then you can do something about it. So there's no need to worry. And if you're worrying over something you can't do anything about, well, you can't do anything about it. So don't worry. And so in the end, he says, so what do you have to worry about? There's nothing you should worry about. He taps into the wisdom of Jesus. Whatever comes our way, whatever the the future of this country holds for us, politically speaking, financially speaking. I think of our brothers and sisters over in Mississippi right now Uh, don't have clean water parts of this country are up in flint michigan are worse off than third world countries this is the most rich country in the world the most prosperous and yet nothing is for certain here two years ago we thought everything was fine there's no new disease that could go through and ravage and and claim a million lives in this country that we never heard of before and yet Look what happened. Swept through like wildfire. We don't know what tomorrow holds. It's probably not great news from the perspective of a human being. But if we look from God's perspective and we see not what we can't do, but we see who God is for us. The kind of God To whom in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving that we can present our needs and requests. Who Jesus says cares so much. You think you care about something. God cares about the sparrows and the trees and the lilies in the field which are here and gone in a day. He cares more about those things than we could possibly care about anything in this lifetime. And if that's how He feels about an animal and a plant, how much more does He care about His children made in His own image, adopted into His own family? How much more so do you think He cares for you, Christian, who bear His divine markings in your body and soul? See, we can be thankful when we pray. Even when we're in need. We can rejoice and be gentle because we know that the God to whom we pray cares only for our good and our salvation. That's the kind of God He is. That's not true for the pagans. The pagans pray to their gods and they're constantly praying that their wrath would be satiated. That their, their capricious favor would be doled out. The pagan gods care nothing. Even the pagans would say this. Pagan gods care nothing for the people that worship them. And the people that don't have any gods are even worse off because what they have is wishful thinking and a universe that they can see left to itself is cold and uncaring and moving towards death. But for Christians even when things are tense and hard, we know that God and Christ has already done everything for us. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, while we didn't care a lick about the things of God, while we were fundamentally opposed to Him, while we were first in line to nail His hands and feet to a cross and spit in His face and make fun of His name and His glory, that's when He loved us and gave Himself up for us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Folks, how much more confidence than how much more peace, how much more joy can we have as Christians knowing that God is for us? If that is the thing on which we look and trust, the petty squabbles between the Euodia and the Syntyches, the the divisions between the Pauls and the Barnabases wash away like nothing because we have a God who loves and sings over us, we read in the Old Testament. Who or or what could possibly stand against us? When you're sad, when you're in need, when you're anxious, when you're hurting, when you're lonely, when you don't have enough in the bank, present your request before God and He will hear and He will answer. And in closing, verse 7, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What Paul is referring to the peace of God is the peace that God Himself inhabits. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in this perpetual serenity where they are not subject to or in danger of anything because He is God. And nothing else could stand up to Him. So the peace that God Himself enjoys in His inner Trinitarian life, a surreal reality that defies our limited human perspective and understanding, that peace that God lives in is yours because of Christ Jesus. That peace that Jesus himself embodies, even as he goes to be derelict on a cross. Peace I leave with you, he says. Peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. <laughs> the world's peace, which is, you know, last in a truce for a few years until somebody's running out of food or water and then the war starts back over again. Not that kind of peace but the kind of peace that God has. (laughs) So don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Jesus tells us in John 14. This is a peace that transcends human rationality. If someone tries to get you to explain it, don't even bother. (laughs) It's not a peace that can be explained. It's more than we can ask or think as Paul writes in Ephesians. It's a peace that can only be experienced and jesus and guess what he's giving it away even today for free come to jesus right now and experience a peace that surpasses all understanding again paul uses familiar military language here this peace that guards and garrisons your hearts and minds in jesus this peace is like a warrior ironically in a shining golden armor. God's peace is unscratched, unscathed by the world. And it protects your very soul as weak as it might be in Christ Jesus. Your Maker, your Defender, your Redeemer, and your Friend. No force is more powerful than God's peace. Nothing in this world is greater than God's peace. And He gives it to you freely now in Jesus. It's yours in Christ. Take hold of it. And it's this peace which guards us today as we come to this supper table. No matter what our week has looked like before, no matter the trials that we've gone through, no matter the bad phone calls we've gotten, no matter the frustrating meetings we've been at work, no matter the terrible situations, the worries that we have over money and over the future, and where are we going to send the kids to college, and and how are we going to pay for this, and and what's happening to our, our world, what's happening to our country. This peace guards you today as you come to this table and are blessed and reminded that Jesus took everything that could ever harm you. Your sin, your shame, your suffering. He took that on Himself so that you could come to God's supper table and rejoice even in difficult days. That you could be famously gracious to all people and that you may be guarded day and night from here unto glory by the peace of God that brings us together. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to your supper table at peace with you by the sacrifice of your Son's cross, help us to rejoice in all things, to be gracious to all people, to be at peace beyond all understanding. This can only happen by Your Spirit and in Your Son, not by anything we do or think or believe. So help us to let go of our rivalries, to let go of our anxieties, and to grasp hold of the Gospel which has first grasped hold of us. And we ask this all only in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.